0: Bibles please to the book of Revelation, chapter seventeen. Do keep Audrey in your prayers. Uh, Had apparently a rough trip coming up to church today. Uh, God would touch her. Revelation chapter seventeen. Last week we looked at chapter sixteen, in which John describes the final pouring out of God's wrath in terms of the seven bowls of God's wrath. And just a couple of things to remind you of. God's wrath is described in terms of the plagues that occurred uh, on Egypt. God's judgments are proclaimed to be just and true, that what he is doing is right. In the face of these plagues, four times in the book of, uh, in the chapter, in chapter 16, we are told that people cursed God. And one would think that repentance would be a more natural reaction, but repentance doesn't come naturally to us. What comes naturally to us is to curse God, even in the midst of judgment. In chapter 17, we are given a bit more information about the target of that rat. Here she is described as the great prostitute, Babylon the Great. There's been, I think, as much speculation about who this represents as the whole issue of 666. Some things to keep in mind. Before we jump in, first of all, what John is writing about would have to be contemporary with him for his readers to understand what he was talking about. He was writing about something that would soon occur. He's not writing about the distant future for him, our, our time, for example. He's writing about things that his readers would understand. Secondly, the Old Testament is the key to understanding not only the book of Revelation, but this passage in particular. And thirdly, the application, I think, is where people sort of go off. That is, they use the application as the interpretation. And no, John means one thing, and it's very clear. Now, the application can be applied to other things, and we will see that at the end of the sermon today. Two additional things for this chapter. John is given an explanation. This has happened before In the book of Revelation, it, it, beginning in verse number seven, the angel says, I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and the beast. She rides." So uh, first we have him seeing this thing and then it is explained to him. And secondly, for the second time, in this book, we are told that it calls for wisdom to understand what is being said in verse number nine. This calls for a mind with wisdom. And the first time we had to deal with six hundred sixty six. This time, it deals with the beast that the woman rides. First of all, the description of this great prostitute is found in verses 1 through 6, at least the first part of verse number 6. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a desert. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones, and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. This title was written on her forehead, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. As the chapter opens, John is summoned by one of the seven angels with the seven bowls, and he is told that he is going to be shown the punishment of the great prostitute. And by the way, at this point, we have not been told anything about any prostitute, great or not. This is the first time that it comes up. Now, we have been told about sexual immorality, uh, which I think ties into what John is saying here. We'll look at that later. Uh, But at this point, we don't know anything about a great prostitute. But the words of the angels give a strong indication of what is intended, in that the description comes from the Old Testament. We are told that she sits on many waters. This comes from the Old Testament dealing with Babylon. Jeremiah, in his famous oracle against Babylon, found in Jeremiah's Jeremiah chapters 50 and 51, he speaks of Babylon as you who live by many waters. Twice in Revelation, we've read about Babylon the Great, and that city is Jerusalem. Now, in verse 15, we will be told more about the many waters. But at this juncture, the point, I think, is identification with Babylon that came under the judgment of God. But there's something else. And I hadn't realized this until a commentator pointed out. Every other place in the book of Revelation, when we read about many waters, or in the NIV it will say rushing waters, it is used within the context of God's relationship with his people, uh, within the context of worship. I'll just give you some examples. In chapter 1, John has a vision of Jesus, and he says his voice was like the sound of rushing waters, or many waters. In chapter 14, the Lamb is standing on Mount Zion with the 144,000, and I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters. And then we're told it is the sound of the 144,000 singing a new song of praise to God. In chapter 19, which is a couple chapters away, there is praise in heaven, and John writes, Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. So I think for John's readers, and perhaps for us, there should be a certain element of surprise here. Because up to this point, anything having to do with many waters or rushing waters, that's God's people, that's worship, that's that's liturgy, that's part of what John is saying. But here we read about rushing waters, many waters, and a prostitute. And that's certainly certainly not what we would expect. But there is a reason, I believe, for God's use of language and imagery. Why is she called a great or the great prostitute? Well, we're told in verse number two, with her the kings of the earth committed adultery and the inhabitants of the land were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Again, this imagery is from the Old Testament. It's used in reference to Tyre, a commercial city, the city of the Phoenicians. In Isaiah 24, she will return to her hire as a prostitute and will ply her trade with all the kingdoms on the face of the earth. Nineveh, in the book of Nahum, we are told all because of the wanton lust of a harlot alluring the mistress of sorceries who enslaved nations by her prostitution and peoples by her witchcraft. So we have these world powers that are seen as prostituting themselves. But these are the exceptions in the Old Testament. Generally speaking, any reference to prostitution and a nation refers to Israel. In Isaiah's opening chapter, I think he gives us this wonderful description. I mean, just sort of it encapsulates what is being said. See how the faithful city has become a harlot or prostitute. She was once full of justice. Righteousness used to live in her, but now murderers. Once faithful, but now unfaithful as a harlot or a prostitute. And the imagery of Israel as a prostitute is fairly common in the prophetic writings. They say, God brought you out of Egypt. God redeemed you. He joined you in covenant. He is the husband, you are the wife, and instead you have gone after false gods, you have betrayed your marriage vows, and you have become not only unfaithful, but you have become a prostitute. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, but the term used in this passage, as well as in the Old Testament, is adultery. That is, sexual immorality by one who is married, versus fornication, which we... I don't know what we generally think of prostitutes of maybe unmarried women who go around and ply their trade but here the idea is that of someone who is married a married woman who not only chooses to be unfaithful to her husband but begins to sell her services and becomes a prostitute the whole book of Isaiah I'm sorry not Isaiah Hosea deals with Hosea and his wife Gomer who then after having three children leaves him and not only is unfaithful to him, but becomes a prostitute. And so it isn't simply a matter of adultery. There is the whole motif of prostitution. And Let me just read to you several passages that deal with this. Hosea chapter 9. Do not rejoice, O Israel. Do not be jubilant like the other nations. For you have been unfaithful to your God. You love the wages of a prostitute at every threshing floor. And here we see that Israel goes after uh, gods that deal with fertility, the Baals, B-A-A-L, uh, gods of fertility. In Jeremiah, chapter 2, Long ago you broke off your yoke and tore off your bonds. You said, I will not serve you. Indeed, on every high hill and under every spreading tree, you lay down as a prostitute. How can you say I'm not defiled? Have not run after the balls. See how you behaved in the valley. Consider what you have done. You are a swift she camel running here and there, a wild donkey accustomed to the desert, sniffing in the wind in her craving, in her heat, who can restrain her? Any males that pursue her need not tire themselves. At mating time, they will find her. Uh, the picture is that of an animal that is in heat. The female in heat, running after males, wanting to mate. This is Israel, the prostitute, who doesn't have false gods coming after her. She runs after false gods and lies down under every tree. The next chapter in Jeremiah chapter 3. But you have lived as a prostitute with many lovers. Would you now return to me, declares the Lord look up to the barren heights and see is there not a place where you have not been ravished by the hillside i'm sorry by the roadside you sat waiting for lovers sat like a nomad in the desert you have defiled the land with your prostitution and wickedness therefore the showers have been withheld and no spring rains have fallen yet you have the brazen look of a prostitute you refuse to blush with shame You may not know this, but I have actually read to you some of the tamer portions from the prophetic writings. Some of the writings uh, from the prophets, some might even consider obscene, the way that in sexual terms it refers to Israel's unfaithfulness to God. The real obscenity is that Israel was unfaithful to God. The real obscenity is the rejection of his son. The real obscenity is the shout, we have no king. But Caesar, the religious leaders led Israel down the wrong path. And therefore, we read in verse two, the inhabitants of the land were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. In verse number three, the angel takes John in the spirit into a desert. And just to remind you, we've seen this expression two other times in the book of Revelation. It doesn't refer to a uh, sort of a frame of mind it does refer to a specific experience. The Spirit brings John into a place of prophetic vision. John is now seeing something by vision, by the work of the Spirit. This is the language we find in the Old Testament, as God spoke to the prophets. There in the desert, he sees a woman. Let's stop there a minute. Does that ring a bell with anybody? A woman in the desert? In chapter twelve we are told that the dragon pursues a woman into the desert. The woman who gave birth to the male child, he wants to destroy her. He pursues her into the desert, and a river comes out of his mouth, but the earth opens up and swallows the river and so that the woman is preserved. We are told she is given two wings to help her escape in the place prepared for her in the desert. She's protected there from the dragon. And then he turns away from her and makes war on the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. The desert was to be a temporary place of escape. But by the time we get to chapter 17, she is still in the desert, but now with a significant change. Rather than being assaulted, rather than being pursued, she is now at peace with her enemy. And now she is described As sitting on a scarlet beast. The beast who has descriptions that match that of the dragon, the seven heads, the ten horns, that which matches the beast of the sea, one who is covered with blasphemous names. As we've seen, the beast refers to the Roman Empire. What is described is an illicit relationship between the religious leadership of Israel and the political leadership of the Roman Empire. The religious leaders of Israel depended on the Romans for their position. The Romans were the ones who chose the high priest. The Romans were the ones who had that power. And so these priests basically sold out in order to maintain their positions. Politically and religiously, they were, as the expression goes, in bed with the Romans. They offered sacrifices every morning and evening for the Roman emperor. They worked together in the death of Jesus and in the persecution of the church. The prostitute is not Rome. The beast is Rome. And this will be explained later. The woman is described as being dressed in purple and scarlet, the clothing of royalty, and glittering with gold, precious stones, and pearls. And I think the first, our first instinct in reading this is to think that this is someone who is dressed up rather gaudily, as a prostitute. That she's dressed, uh, in gold and, and precious stones and and she's got way too much jewelry on and, and she's just you know she's looking like a prostitute. No, actually I don't think that's what is intended. What is described here are basically the trappings of the Old Testament system of worship. The tabernacle, the temple. We have the veil which is made of purple. The description here is that of worship, of liturgy. And John wants us to see the woman dressed as a bride, but a bride who has been unfaithful to her husband. She holds up a golden cup that we are told is filled with the filth of her adulteries. And then she has a title written on her forehead. By this time, we should be familiar with this concept. We've seen that God's people are sealed, His name on their forehead. Those who worship the beast have the mark of the beast on their forehead. She has a title on her forehead. By the way, in the Old Testament, the forehead is a symbol of rebellion. Isaiah 48. For I knew how stubborn you were. The sinews of your neck were iron. In other words, stiff neck. You're not going to be turned. Your forehead was bronze. Hard-headed. And that is where the title is written. Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. What does this mean, this this title that is written on her? Well, mystery is a concept, is a word that we've seen earlier in the book of Revelation. In the Bible, it doesn't have the modern sense of mystery. Rather, it speaks of something that was concealed and now it is revealed. It's still called a mystery because at one time we didn't know what it was, but now, in fact, we do know what it is. To put it simply, mystery is revelation. Mystery has been revealed, and that's what the angel will do uh, as we go along and we'll explain to John all these different things. However, I think there's something else that comes into play here. In chapter 10, we are told that the mystery of God needs to be accomplished, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. And, And what is this mystery? Well, back when we studied chapter 10, we went to Paul's writings. And let me read to you from Ephesians and then from Romans. In reading this, Paul says, You will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. That is the mystery of God. That God has a people and he's bringing new people in. Emily read to us from Romans chapter 11 that the natural branches were broken off and wild branches are now being grafted in. This is the mystery. It is because of the work of Christ. This is what Paul writes to the Romans toward the end of the epistle. Now to him who is able to establish you by my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all nations might believe and obey him. What is it? That the church will be made up of people from all nations. It's only possible because of the male child that the woman gave birth to, that the dragon tried to kill and was not able to. But this woman has gone into the desert and has stayed in the desert. And now we see her. She has made an alliance. She has a relationship with the beast. And so the first line on her head is mystery. And I think we must make the connection. She is Israel. God's people. God's plan. God brought Jesus, Messiah, through Israel. She is part of God's plan, which makes... Her adultery, all the more repulsive, all the more repugnant. She was part of God's plan, and now she's gone after false gods. She's called Babylon the Great. To remind us of Babylon in the Old Testament. She is the mother of prostitutes. That is, she leads others to unfaithfulness to God. You remember the words of Jesus when he said that... He said to the Jewish religious leaders, you you travel across land and sea to make a convert. And when you make him a convert, you make him twice as much the son of Satan. The mother of prostitutes. Earlier in Revelation, in chapter 3, Jesus says, nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. That is part of the people of God. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Yeah. This is what the accusation made against Israel. More than this, we are told that the woman is drunk on the blood of the saints. Again, some Old Testament reference. The ultimate in uncleanness is blood. You're not allowed to have anything that has blood in it. You can't eat any meat that has blood in it. And here she is drinking the blood of the saints. She is drunk on them. She is intoxicated. I think she thought she had achieved some type of political power by leading the way and persecuting the church. The Roman Empire will not persecute the church until the time of John. But from the time of Jesus on, the Jews had led the way. And I think they began to think more highly of themselves than they should have because of their success in persecuting the church. This is the vision that John sees. Now, if you look at the rest of verse number six in the NIV, this is what we find. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. Now, I think the NIV doesn't help us here as much as the King James does because the King James has, and when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. That is, what we've seen thus far in the book of Revelation, we would think that John's like, oh, that's repulsive. I'm astonished. I'm shocked at what I'm seeing. And instead, he found it quite admirable. He wondered with admiration. This is a, this is a beautiful woman who is dressed as a bride. This This is... A wonderful thing to see. You see, we need to be reminded, as the Bible tells us time and again, because it is very realistic, that evil does not always re- appear repulsive. Temptation to sin can be very attractive. Think of the first temptation that is recorded, that of Eve, and the and the serpent tells her, "Look at it," and, and she looks, and it looks desirable. It looks like it will taste good, and she wants the things that he is promising. No, I think if evil always appeared evil, it would not be attractive. And when John sees this great prostitute, we're thinking, John, what's wrong with you? This is, this is a prostitute. This is the great prostitute. How can you admire her at all? Well, that, I think, is the nature of evil. And so the angel now will reveal to him the nature of this woman But more than that, the beast on which she rides, because I think the beast, I mean, the fact that she's made an alliance with this beast speaks volumes about her. So let's read beginning in verse 7 to the end of the chapter here in Revelation 17. Then the angel said to me, Why are you astonished? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and of the beast she rides, which has the seven heads and ten horns. The beast which you saw once was, now is not. And will come up out of the abyss and go to his destruction. The inhabitants of the earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world, will be astonished when they see the beast, because he once was, now is not, and yet will come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is not, or one is, the other has not yet come. But when he does come, he must remain for a little while. The beast who once was, and now is not, is an eighth king. He belongs to the seven and is going to his destruction. The ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but for who, but who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. They have one purpose, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. They will make war against the lamb, but the lamb will overcome them because he is lord of lords and king of kings, and with him will be... Will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. Then the angel said to me, The waters you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. The beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose. by agreeing to to give the beast their power to rule until God's words are fulfilled. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. Now, I think it goes without saying, this is a difficult passage. And I will, by the grace of God, try to make it clear. As I said, much of what is written here is about the beast. Only the last verse, only the last sentence tells us about the woman, that the woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. We will see more about her in chapter 18. But the fact that she has such a close relationship with the beast, when we study the beast, it tells us about her character and her destiny. As John is told here, this calls for a mind with wisdom. And I think what exactly is meant is unclear or may not be agreed upon. But what we find, at least at the beginning, is an imitation of Christ in that we have uh, the beast uh, which once was, now is not, and will come up out of the abyss. That is, it it is a false Christ in that we have Christ who was, who is, and who will be forever. Um, Now we have this, this beast that's trying to be like Christ, that once was and then wasn't and now is again. Uh, We'll come up out of the abyss, and the the expression used is that of the second coming, uh, the parousia. So what we find, at least at the beginning, at the outset here, is of a beast that is trying to be like Christ. It is a false Christ. And I think that is one of the reasons why the woman has a relationship with him, because he appears to be something that, in fact, he is not. It is because of this counterfeiting, by the way, that we are told that the people of the land will be astonished. They will wonder. And those who are not God's elect, remember what Jesus said, if it were possible that even the very elect would be deceived, well, those who are not God's people, whose names are not written, they, they are deceived. They see this false Christ and they think, this is it. This is the real deal. Because that other guy who was here, Some people thought he was the Christ, but he couldn't possibly have been because of the things that happened to him. Now they go after a false Christ. And we shouldn't be surprised. Israel leaves her relationship with God to go after other gods. Who is the beast? Well, the angel tells John that the seven heads are seven hills upon which the woman sits. Traditionally, Rome is known as a city on seven hills. But also we are told that the seven heads refer to seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and one will come, but only for a while. And I would suggest to you that what is intended here, and John's readers would know this, are the seven Caesars that belong to the line of Julius Caesar. We have Julius Caesar, Augustus, Claudius, I'm sorry, Tiberius, Caligula, and then Claudius. That's the five. They're dead. They're gone. One is, that's Nero. Because Nero is alive, as John writes us, It is, in fact, Nero who is 666. We saw that earlier. But after Nero dies, there will be one more, Galba, who will only reign for seven years. And then that is the end of the line of Julius Caesar. And then there will be a new, well, a series of dynasties of Caesars that will follow. The ten kings, we are told here, are represented by ten horns. And here, I don't know that we look for ten literal kings or the number ten. Remember, ten means completeness. It is interesting that the Roman Empire was divided into ten uh, imperial provinces with ten governors. And I think the implication is that they will be given additional power during the persecution of the church. That Rome will, in fact, lose some of its power in the chaos and give power to the governors and say, we want you to destroy the church. They will make war against the Lamb and against his people. But the Lamb will win. We're not surprised because he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. He does not stand alone. With him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. We are told at this point To go back earlier in the vision, that the waters that the great prostitute sits on represents peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. And it's been suggested this refers to the Jewish influence that pervaded the Roman Empire. There were Jews everywhere in the empire. In fact, if you read about the day of Pentecost, as Luke writes it, he says, he begins in chapter 2, Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. The Jews had scattered throughout, but every once once a year they would come for Passover and they would come together as a nation. They are scattered throughout, and and the great prostitute sits on many waters. She who is sitting on the beast is also sitting on many waters. But she does not expect what is about to happen, because the beast will hate the woman, we are told. And will turn on her. The beast will leave her naked. The word in the King James is desolate, which we find from what Jesus says in Matthew 24. He will eat her flesh, the same way that the dogs ate the flesh of Jezebel. And will burn her with fire. In Leviticus, we are told that if the daughter of a priest becomes a prostitute, she's to be burned with fire the one form of execution apart from stoning. Everybody else is stoned to death. But if a priest's daughter becomes a prostitute, she is to be burned alive. And here is Jerusalem, God's bride of the old covenant, who has turned against God and become a prostitute. And now she will suffer the consequences. She will be left desolate People will hate her and turn against her and eat her flesh and burn her with fire. I think what is described here, the events that will happen shortly after John writes this, would happen in 70 A.D. God's wrath poured out on the great prostitute. Those she thought were her friends, her lovers, have turned against her and have ruined her. Why did they do this? Well, we're told in verse number 16, they will hate the prostitute, but that still doesn't answer our question. Why would they do this? In verse number 17, we are told for God put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose. And one is reminded of what Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge and you with the help of wicked men put him to death. In other words, we.